Welcome to the City Grace Summer Breakout Sessions. This is Session 3, The Lifeblood of Discipleship, Embracing Your Identity as a Son or Daughter of God. Good evening, everybody. Um, thank you so much for having me. It's a privilege to be here with you today. Um, thanks, Ben, for the introduction and for having me speak. Um, it's been a little while since I've spoken in front of a bunch of people, so bear with me if I get a little, you know, off track. Um, so before, as Ben said, uh, I go to Trinity Grace Church in Brooklyn. Uh, I ha- was on staff there for about four and a half years. I helped plant the Park Slope Church uh, with tech work and uh, life group leading and missional community type stuff. And I planted the missional community that's been said that has become Trinity Grace Church Crown Heights. Um, I like long walks on the beach. Uh, my mother's name is Kathy. I love the color blue. And uh, I like to binge on TV shows. What's your favorite binging TV show? Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. There we go. Okay. <laughs> Westeros. Very good. So before I launch into it, um, I'm going to read our teaching text, which is from Romans 8. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you by the Spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so you live again in fear. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Now we're going to skip ahead to verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Jesus Christ who died. More than that, who was raised to life is the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger of sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all the day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I'm here today to talk about gospel identity and More specifically, I'm here to talk about what we believe to be true about ourselves and what God has to say about that and what he believes to be true about us. As I was preparing for this talk, I was uh, looking through some old journals and kind of just going through my spiritual journey over the past few years, and uh, it really struck me. Um, One, it's a really illuminating experience. You can see uh, a lot of the ways that God has come through in your life. You can see kind of the overall thrust of the things you struggle with and you can also see the, the beautiful moments with my wife and things like that, but I was struck this time uh, by how many of my uh, journal entries started with the phrase, God, please forgive me. Please forgive me. And then went into pretty much like a three-page long prayer about why I felt I was wicked and unworthy of his love, 
and then coming back around to please forgive me at the end of it. Um, it really got to me uh, because it's not the thing we're called to, is it? You know, when, when Christ died for our sins, there's a big thing that happens. Um, he gives us himself. He gives us his love, his acceptance, his joining into his family. Um, and what I got from those journal entries was I realized that most of the time, functionally, I'm living as if the resurrection didn't happen in me. As if the work that God did to buy my salvation wasn't present in my life. I'm living under the complete weight of my sin, past and present, the sin that I have trouble getting over in the present right now. I want to start off with a question, and I'd love it if I had a few really, really charismatic volunteers answer me. What, when you think about God, what is his primary feeling towards you? And before we get any answers, I want you to think about it, and I don't want like a basic Sunday school church answer, okay? Like it's easy to say, well, he loves me, and uh, he cares about me. But I'm talking about like on your days when you're walking down the streets, you know what's going on in your head. My head is just pretty messed up most of the time, you know? So it's like... What's going through your head, you know, all the things you struggle with, the sins you know they're in your life, the selfishness you struggle with on a daily basis, the brokenness, all of that. With all of that, when you come to God with your prayers, what do you see? Like, if you imagine his face, what would be the expression on his face? Or the, the primary feeling he was feeling toward you? Longing? Okay. Disappointment? Disappointment? Kind of like a, a get-it-together, like a stern get-it-together. Like, come on, man. Seriously. It's been a while we've been together. Um, well, I think if we're going to go to a limit here and say that most of us, uh, when we're kind of processing that and thinking about, you know, functionally how God exists in our life, we generally feel pretty far away from him. Um, I'm going to say that most of us have a distorted view of uh, how God feels about us that's based out of a distorted view of ourselves. Um, our own egos and the, the pain of everyday living make it hard to see ourselves clearly. Uh, we go back and forth between pride and insecurity. We are inconsistent in our relationships. We are tired. We're unsure of where to kind of plant ourselves. Uh, and uh, we feel insecure and we feel the brokenness that's inside of us very often. I think a lot of times we, we want to relieve that pressure with, you know, whatever will take it away, you know, food sex, uh, binging on TV shows, which I love to do, um, or feeling that we're entitled to every pleasure that, that might come our way so that we can just get away from this feeling that we just don't feel really okay. Um, I want to pay a pause and say that the things listed there, I don't think that they're necessarily inherently bad. I think in the right context, they're actually extremely beautiful and a big part of our lives. But when we use them to cope and to shield ourselves for what's going on in ourselves, to kind of ease this uneasiness that we feel... Um, that's when it causes addiction uh, and all kinds of other things to break into our lives. Um, on top of that, we live in New York City. It is one of the busiest cities in the world. Um, it can seem like we're running from place to place constantly, you know, just trying to manage our relationships, our friendships, uh, going to school, going to work, going to work and school, going to other jobs, uh, other gigs, because most people have multiple things going on here. Then on top of that, you're trying to hopefully, if you're lucky, managing a relationship with a significant other. Um, and then from there, uh, from there we worry about the, the cost of the city. It's extremely expensive to live here, right? 
Um, how many people in here live paycheck to paycheck? Okay. Not everybody, but some people. Um, you know, I think a lot of us have this fear that eventually we'll be priced out of the city and that you know, we'll lose all our money, we'll be able to pay our bills, we'll have to move out, and we don't know what will happen then. Um, beyond that, we're constantly being advertised here, to here. Constantly. It's like we're living inside a commercial. You walk down Times Square, or even just the lesser streets, you have Colgate right here, you've got Peyton Manning on a huge sign telling you that he likes toothpaste. And they're trying to form your desires, your wants, making you feel insecure about the things, and making a perceived need in your mind, and it's constantly pervasive here, that you're missing something, that you need something else in your life to really ease you back into, your, into feeling okay with yourself. And then this city just has so much to offer. Um, we have access to almost anything at a moment's notice. The best foods, entertainment. We have pretty much any sexual experience you can imagine here and some you can pay for. So it's like all of these temptations and there's bars. And I'm, I'm just being real with you people. Um, all of these experiences are at our moment's notice. So I think that it's not different anywhere else, but there's temptation constantly bombarding you in this city. You know? And there's also that temptation because we are around people so much and we're running around so much that we're like, I need to protect my time. You know, I need to make sure that I don't get you know, too involved with this or that and that so we kind of become selfish with our time even. Um, I think what I'm trying to get at is a lot of us just don't feel okay. There's an uneasiness as we go from place to place. We carry around all these old wounds from other people. And those wounds color uh, the way we interact with others and process our world. I mean, I've seen this in my relationships. I'm generally kind of a melancholy guy. Um, I, I joke to kind of cover it up, but uh, a lot of times I struggle with like deep depression, and that can make you very inward focused. And there are times in that where people who love you can do things that hurt you because they just can't deal with how you are anymore. And that's like partly me, partly them. And those wounds you know, uh, can, can really cause pain in your life. There was this time, even recently, where a friend of mine, uh, we worked together a little bit, and things just got way too convoluted. You know, we'd been working together for a while. Um, we were friends and you know, working together. He was kind of my boss, so it was like all of these things were kind of hitting each other at one time. And it was like, Sometimes we start to build these sort of like constructs in our head, these cases in our head against people that are in our lives. Um, and because of my unease, it was hard for me to, when the situation finally subsided, to really just give up what had happened. The wounds were still there for me, the brokenness was still there. So I felt it extremely difficult to just let it go and to trust that God has a better plan for the whole situation and that we can learn to love each other well even in spite of these actions. Um, and I had to write an apology letter to him at some point. Um, so we carry the memory and shame of past sins also, don't we? I mean, I know there's sins that have happened literally 10 years ago, 15 years ago, that I still think back on. I'm like, how could that possibly be true about me? And then there's like the very present sins we deal with today. You know, some are small, like just little selfish things we do for ourselves. Others are, you know, the world would see as a giant, you know. I'm someone who struggled greatly with lust, you know, on an addiction level. I'm someone who has struggled greatly with, you know, addiction to, like, smoking, things like that. And that's kind of a neutral sort of sin. The truth is, I used it as a way to cope and to get that uneasiness out of my life. 
Um, I struggle with selfishness. I struggle with not doing things around the house for my wife, you know. I struggle with wanting what I want when I want it because I don't feel really okay with my life. And I feel like if I do these sorts of things, then I'll just feel better for a few moments and that's okay. I'm going to propose today that that's cheap. We're missing something very real in that exchange. Um, I think most of us, most of the time, we don't feel like conquerors or even beloved sons of God. You mean, do you guys feel that way? I mean, most of the time, we're living in this kind of emotional ghetto, you know? We feel like nothing will ever change, and the things that have conquered us for years are going to continue to conquer our lives, and that God must be looking down and just extremely disappointed, right? Now, when we consciously know that God loves us, we functionally live as if God could be nothing but disappointed in us. Um... There's this quote by A.W. Tozer. It's not going to be on the screen because I got it. Oh, maybe it will be. Yes, it will be, actually. Uh, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I talked about a distorted view of ourselves in a distorted view of God, right? I think a lot of the times we put our lens of how we're feeling about ourselves and the lies and the brokenness that other people have kind of piled onto us onto our view of God. That... We don't feel good about ourselves. We feel uneasy. We feel sinful and wicked and like we're hanging on by a thread. So God must have the exact same feeling like, yeah, I'll let him my kingdom. I kind of love him, but he's going to stay, you know, on the periphery. He has to stand during dinner, you know. Um, That's kind of a weird example, isn't it? Just made that one up the top of my head. Boom. Uh, Because we have trouble accepting and loving ourselves as we are, at least functionally, we believe that God has the same trouble accepting and loving us just as we are today. On some level, we believe that our sin and our struggles are actually too great for God to ever let us pass the periphery of his kingdom. That we in some way need to add to the work that was accomplished on the cross. I want to tell you something really, really exciting and really, really special to me. And it's something you've heard about a billion times in your life in church. Every one of you in this room, you are deeply and fully loved by God. I'm going to say that again. You are deeply and fully loved by the creator of the universe, and his promises are true for you yesterday, today, and forever. Hear this passage from the teaching text. Um, For those who are led by the Spirit are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, now listen to this, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we also may share in His glory. This verse gets to me because it's not talking about ways to escape hell or you know, using God as a way to, to get out of this earth to get to heaven or talking about how God is some personal piggy bank who has this kind of blessing bank that we're going to cash in on someday. It, it also, more importantly, doesn't talk about a God who sees us as outsiders that he gives his love to begrudgingly. This passage, passage says that when God looks at us, he doesn't see an outsider He doesn't see a vagrant or a sinner whom he is constantly disappointed in. 
But when he looks at you, he sees a beloved son and daughter. With all of your sin and all of your brokenness and all your confusion, he sees his child. His primary emotion towards you is not disappointment or shame or anger, but a deep, abiding love. Now, this is a giant concept because it means that the most high God of the universe, who created all things, is in all things, who is above everything, transcends, and is perfect in every way, loves you like his own son. He goes so far as to say that you are co-heirs with Christ. Now this is huge. Basically, it means that he sees us the exact same way that he sees his son. Jesus Christ, who came to this earth, a part of himself, a part of the Trinity, you know, so that's like a part of himself, but also his son. It gets really confusing, but he sent him to earth to live this life and to be a sacrifice. He sacrificed himself selflessly for us, conquered death, rose again, and ascended to heaven. He sees you with the exact same love and affection as he sees his own son. Now, when I think about that, I get really, really excited. Because most of the time, I don't think about myself that way. When I think about God, as I said before, I think of a disappointed father. Like, how could you do this again? How could you fall off the wagon again? But this scripture, Paul himself, is setting up something completely different in this set. He's saying that we are completely loved, that it's completely by grace. That this is a freely given gift. I'm going to ask you a question, and I want a few people to answer if you get brave enough, okay? Um, how does a good father treat his children? Like, what, what's like the definition of a good father? Because I think we have a lot of baggage we bring into that concept of fatherhood and motherhood because we have imperfect constructs for how it works, right? So, in your ideal good father, what does he like towards you? What's his emotion towards you? How does he act? Proud. Thank you, Pastor. What's best for you? It's good. Patience. It's great. Provides. Provides. It's awesome. Great. A good father loves his children completely. He sometimes has to discipline his children. That's like a very real part of our journey. And I think sometimes we internalize that and make that mean that God doesn't love us anymore or the viewpoint of us is just angry. But a good father that's not like controlled by ego or like really fleeting emotion disciplines completely out of a sense of love to provide growth. There's sometimes like resetting of bones that is very painful in your life, but it causes great dividends. A good father cares deeply for his children. His primary emotion, his primary hope for them is that they will grow up knowing how deeply they are loved. They will grow up confident and fully competent in who they are. That they will know who they are because their father has given them a sense of their own identity. Um, truly accepting your sonship, I believe, is the beginning of all discipleship. Knowing how deeply you're loved, knowing what's true about you is like the first step in any form of, form of like, uh, going after holiness. Uh, it's the fundamental building block to any form of growth and discipleship. Uh, I'm just going to speak some things that are, that are true of you in the light of the New Covenant, okay? You are fearfully and you're wonderfully made. 
You are bought with a dear price, his son. You are wrapped in the most complete love that you'll ever experience. You are accepted and supported as you are. You are free from the bondage of sin and death. You are adopted by a good father and are free to rest in his love. Does words make you excited when you think about them? Now I think fairly naturally at this point, you know, like, well, that's great that you're talking about love and that God really loves us and, uh, you know, but I really struggle with things and Scripture has some really strong words to talk about all the struggles that I have. That's very true, very true. And we start to, that, that kind of insecurity creeps back in so easily as well on our own part. We're like, God couldn't love me that completely. I must not really know him. We can look at all kinds of scriptures that make life seem hopeless. Uh, we find it hard to just truly accept this adoption that he's offering us. We don't see how it's possible that we are worthy of his promises. I know most of the time I don't. But the truth is, we aren't worthy of his promises. We're not. And we do fall short over and over and over again. But that, but that is what's beautiful. No one is. No one is worthy of the kingdom of God. No one is inherently worthy of grace. Now, we're leading up to Romans 8, and you have this beautiful kind of scripture. I'm sure most of you read it and cried and thought, wow, this is beautiful. Well, Romans 1, you'd, be, you'd have the exact opposite reaction. You'd be like, wow, none of us can be saved. He like, starts just listing every sin that's like a cultural hot button. Everything that we struggle with, he's like, well, here's what I say about homosexuality. Here's what I say about this sin, that sin, this sin, that sin. And like, if you're really spiritual and you really got your spiritual disciplines in place, you're like, man, he's really laying into those sinners. I'm really happy about it. All right? But then literally, and if you're not, you're feeling the fear of God just like deeply in your soul. And literally the next, next chapter, chapter 2, he launches into the religious who are sitting there being like, man, he's getting them. He's like, you are no more fit to experience the kingdom of God than they are. You know, you, your, your practices are more important to you than knowing me in, in any way, real, real way, shape, or form. Um, so we have this kind of beginning of an argument that Paul's setting up in Romans 1 and 2 that kind of plays out all the way up to Romans 8 and even further. Um, that Basically, the core of the argument is that no one is fit to receive the presence of God. No one is worthy of this sonship. No one on earth is worthy of having his grace or his love in and of ourselves. He does, he, then what's great about this is he's setting up this argument that says it's completely by grace. It's a completely freely, freely given gift. Sorry, my mouth's getting a little dry. So freely came out as freely. Um, it's a freely given gift that he just bestows upon us lovingly. We can rest if we really think about that. There's like so much freedom there, right? Freedom from the kind of battles we go through in our head constantly. This insecurity, this sense that we're not okay, the sense that God really is very angry with us. We really internalize this concept that none of us are worthy. It's completely by grace that our love is given, that this is completely a gift and nothing we can do can earn more of that love or less of that love. We come fuller into contact to what it really means to be transformed by the Spirit of God. And from that place, we're also free to love ourselves as God sees us. Which I think is such an important concept, because I think the root of all this is we don't really love ourselves, right? We don't really think we're okay. We don't 
think we're good, per, good people. I mean, some people do, and I thank God for them. That's great. A lot of people don't feel very good about themselves, you know. And from this place, we can take off all that baggage about beating the crap out of ourselves every two weeks when we fall off the wagon, you know. We can take all that insecurity that we feel constantly every day to day and we can say, thank God you're here. Thank God I am the way that I am and that you made me fearfully and wonderfully. And we could take that and we could say, I am loved deeply and fully. And I can't add anything to the cross. But then, kind of logically, you're like, well, what about sin? You know? There's very real sins that are listed in Scripture. What about those things that are still in my life? Um, what about it? Who has an opinion, you know, in the context of what we're talking about, about sin? How does it play into this kind of view of grace and love? It's almost secondary. It's definitely on the list, but it's not first. Good. Anyone else? Sin. You start to see sin as a waste of time. Very good. Yeah. Well, Roman talks about it. Romans talks about it. Um, in Romans 6, you know, I think that's a, that's a great viewpoint we see as a waste of time. I think some of us would be like kind of excited all of a sudden because you're like, wow, I don't have to feel the guilt of sin anymore. My goat ridedness is gone. So it's kind of a free pass and I can just kind of go in and change that ticket in at any point I want, right? Well, Romans 6 gives like a harsh warning against that. Um, when we get to Romans 6, he's like, uh, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may, may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Like you were saying. Or don't you know that all of us are baptized into Christ Jesus? We're baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Paul's not letting us off the hook here. He's saying in the strongest possible terms that the question of whether this gives us a free pass to do whatever we like is ridiculous. We've been saved by grace from fear, shame, and death. To cheapen that by not fighting to live in the ways of truth is not compatible with who we are as redeemed sons of God. Furthermore, the life laid out in Scripture is not arbitrary. Those, those principles are not arbitrary. They are the bedrock of living a life that's not dominated by anything other than Christ. They are the key to opening up and open, they are the key to being open and clear enough to have the fullest possible experience of the love of God and the fullest experience of who we truly are, our true identities. Now there's a quote from C.S. Lewis. Um, to have faith in Christ means, of course, trying to do all that he says. There would be no, no sense in saying you trusted a person if you would not take his advice. Thus, if you have really handed yourself over to him, it must follow that you are trying to obey him but trying in a new way, a less worried way. Not doing these things in order to be saved because he has begun to save you already. Not hoping to get to heaven as a reward for your actions, but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because a first faint gleam of heaven is already inside you. I'm going to say our discipline flows out of a reaction to grace and love that's been given to us. This is the perspective change that we need. Because our longing to move past sin are no longer attempts to prove ourselves worthy to God. Because we already know that in and of ourselves we are not worthy. 
Tim Keller has like this great way uh, of describing it. He says, we must realize that we're more sinful than we ever dared believed, more hope, more loved than we ever dared hoped. This is a place we should live from, knowing our frailty and our inability to do this on our own. As God, I assure you, already knows that you can't do it on your own. But then realizing that love and grace is a gift that's freely given and that we are completely loved, we can surrender our sins over to him, surrender ourselves daily to him, knowing that he loves us completely instead of going in these cycles where we just beat ourselves up for week after week after week. There's nothing that we can do to make God love us any more or less, as I said earlier. He already accepts us as we are and then calls us into a better life than the one we've been living now. Our discipline is our reaction, it's our expression of love that we feel for the God who's adopted us completely into his family. I can't say enough, our sins are already forgiven and we are already part of his kingdom, so we're being offered a life that's far better than the one we're leading right now. I think sometimes our real struggle is that we don't believe these things and that makes it harder to let go of the lesser things we're clinging to so tightly. The addictions we have. The self-focus. We're afraid if we just give that up, what will be there? Who will we be? They define us so much, you know? They're the way we process the world, the way we cope. When we have anxiety, we go to these little coping mechanisms all the time. Because we don't really believe that there's freedom available to us. That Christ, you know, called us, Christianity originally called the way, that he's calling us to the way. That there's more for us. We're actually being offered freedom from the bondage of sin and death. And this means that we no longer have to live under the weight of our sin because the price has already been paid. We can fo- then follow God freely without the awful burden of fear and shame, constantly surrendering ourselves to his love, moment after moment, in moments of great victory and those moments of great defeat when you feel like you're the most awful person in the world. The battle has already been won. Accepting yourself the way that God does and living the freedom that he's given to you is the lifeblood of, make, of following Jesus. Let me say that again because I said it kind of muddled, and I think it's important. Accepting yourself the way that God does and living in freedom, that's like the lifeblood of discipleship, the lifeblood of following Jesus. Without that, we're really just talking about moralism. We're talking about like a, a way to order our lives and a way to feel, you know, have an equation so we feel okay about what goes on. This is like the beginning of every spiritual discipline, is knowing how deeply and truly that you're loved. So, where do we go from here? I'm almost done speaking, so don't worry. If you felt like this is boring or long-winded, it's almost over. So, before we do, uh, I want to ask you guys, how do we actualize this? If we were to really live like God loved us so completely that he was... Basically, you know, the, the analogy of like a, a marriage, like the church is God's bride is used in scripture over and over again. You know, and that relationship, though hard, is one of the most fulfilling one, ones you're part of. It's hard because you realize how selfish you are every day of your life, which is fun. Um, it's also hard. It's also beautiful because you have someone in a good marriage that's always there with you. You know, always has your good in mind. Do you get angry with the other? Yes. Do you feel like passionate every day about each other? No. But there's an abiding love. I mean, God feels passionate because he's the God of the universe. But we, as humans, don't feel that way every day. We want a bunch of options, you know? But God is telling us that he's lo- we're loved completely. Like the best marriage you could possibly think of. 
You know, not only this father analogy, if you're having trouble with that, that he sees you as his bride. Now, that could be hard for a man to think about. I know sometimes I'm thinking about that. I had a funny Kairos moment, actually, where I was, uh, <laughs> I was, uh, like, I'd never really been able to get that. I heard, like, sermons talking about the bride of Christ and all of this over and over again, and I was just like, oh, I am just, like, way too masculine to get this, you know. <laughs> Look at me. I'm so masculine. And, like, it's not, it is true, really. Um, <laughs> But I, I, just being a man, it was hard for me to accept that kind of part, like way of looking at a relationship, you know. Um, and I had this moment where I was praying, and I was reading reading the verse about the, the church being Christ's bride, and like for the first time, I like got the analogy, and I like started sobbing, and I like started calling him my husband, which was a really strange moment. And I get a little feely, touchy feely sometimes, but you know, it was a picture of of what our relationship is. You know, we, in some sense, are second in line, at least how scripture defines marriage in, in a certain sense. Um, we're, uh, we're subservient to some extent to who he is. But he is a good husband, a loving husband who takes care of his bride. He's one that gives us free will and gives us the ability to run off on him constantly, um, but still accepts us back lovingly and without uh, need for... Well, explanation, but you get where I'm going with it. So, with all that said, what are some of the ways that if we really saw the love of Christ this way, what are some of the ways we could actualize this in our lives? And I got a list of them, but I'd rather you give them to me. Here's a couple of things that I think are really helpful in like meditations toward knowing this. Um, before I launch into like these are things that have been like touch points for me. You know, I've needed to cling to this concept of love in my life. Because I've had sins that I've struggled with over and over and over again and thought I was just possibly the worst person on the earth. Not quite the worst, but pretty bad, you know? Um, and these scriptures have been, these kind of meditations, these things that I do are things that have helped me cling on to this love that God has shown to me over and over again. And there's two meditations I love to do. The first is an, an affirmation of your sonship or your daughtership. You know, we'll be gender neutral with the terms that uh, Brennan Manning lays out. Um, and basically, you simply stop, and you can do this at any point in your day. You just need like two minutes to do it. Okay, you stop, and for a minute you stay silent, and you just you know, meditate on the lo- how deeply you're loved. Okay, and then you start to take deep breaths, and you basically say, "I am Abba's son," and you let that wash over you. It's this quick reminder in a day that you can do in two minutes that's like realizing what your true identity is. There's so many things competing for identity, so many things that are constantly clouding our perspective and our days go by so fast. So it's important to have touch points in our day where we can just like check in and say, who am I really? You know, what's most true about me? And I think that's a good one. The second one is uh, using the serenity prayer. Um, I've been to meetings before and it's been a really powerful thing to me to say, you know, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Now, there is a lot packed into that prayer. There's a lot of acceptance of yourself, but there's also not a deflection of, you know, your responsibility. God, help me accept the things I cannot change about myself. Change the things that slowly but surely on our journey with God, as he brings up, that I can, knowing, you know, seeing those things, and the wisdom inside of myself to know the difference between what those are right now. You get where I'm going with that? 
It's, it's, it's a hard thing because it's, it's hard for us to see ourselves clearly. But I think the more and more we get into these kind of uh, moments where we're checking in and realizing how deeply we're loved, the easier it is to say, okay, my running thoughts are kind of foolish and I can kind of take a break from that. Um, another thing, and this is going to get super churchy right now, um, take every day uh, to get into God's Word and talk to Him daily. I'm talking about quiet times, people. Um, I'm talking about just like, if you get 15 minutes as a starting point, where you can take five minutes of prayer or just meditation on what we're talking about today, and then another 10 minutes of reading scripture and processing what that means to your life, maybe jotting down a few notes. I think this is really important because we can look back on kind of our journey. I was talking about my journal earlier. Like we can look back on the ways we've seen God come through in our lives over and over and over again, the way that he's proved himself faithful over and over and over again. And we can also work back our own thoughts you know, my counselor tells me all the time, work it back, you know. What, what's causing you to act out for one? You know, what caused that behavior that's going on inside you? What is the under, what's the underlying thing that's happening inside you? But also, it helps you realize, that, realize those things, but have kind of a plan where you can actually check in with yourself constantly. So I think journaling is a really important thing and a great part of any sort of uh, quiet times that you do. Um, another thing is... Getting yourself grafted into community. Community is so important. I think the Christian life can't be separated from it. Um, other Christian believers helping us see who we are clearly on a daily basis or a weekly basis, however many, many times you can get together and pray together. People that will actually check in with you, keep you accountable, and also reaffirm when you're feeling in the dumps that feeling like the resurrection isn't for you. They're going to tell you, no, that's not true. Jesus loves you as you are right now, and you need to accept that. So it's accountability to the actions you want to see change in your life, but it's also an accountability to fidelity to love that we're being shown. Um, I'm going to close with a statement that I think is really powerful, and just to drive home the point. You can't add anything to the cross of Jesus Christ. The victory that was won on the cross has already been accomplished, and you have nothing to add to it. Your penance that you feel, the ways you beat yourself up constantly, the ways you do great things for his kingdom, none of those things actually affect the work that was done on the cross. You can't win your way closer to him, and if you're in his kingdom, you can't sin your way farther from him. He loves you as you are right now. He loves you in the complete version of yourself that you'll be when you finish. You can't add one thing to it, so it's foolishness to try. So, I'm asking you tonight, please lay down your, you know, lay down your weapons. Stop beating yourself up. You know, take a moment to realize how deeply and fully you're loved. This is the root of true discipleship. This is the root of the gospel power to actually have transformation in your life, is knowing how deeply you're loved. The root to change in your life, the change you want to see is obedience to that love. So, this journey that we're on is embracing who we are in Christ. And the root of that identity is found in knowing how deeply and fully loved you are. And you no longer need to earn it. Now, I'm going to close with a quote from my favorite authors, and I'll say a prayer over us and we'll be done, okay? Uh, this is from Brennan Manning. Sin and forgiveness and falling and getting back up and losing the pearl of great price in the couch cushions, but then finding it again and again and again. Those are the stumbling steps to becoming real. The only script that's really worth following in the world, or the one that's coming. Some may be offended by this ragged muffin memoir, 
a tale told by quite possibly the repeat of all repeat prodigals. So might, some might even go so far to call it ugly. But you see, that doesn't matter. Because once you're real, you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand. That yes, all is grace. It is enough. And it is beautiful. Let me pray for us. Uh, Lord God, we just thank you for this time to come together tonight and focus in on the truth of who we are. Fearfully and wonderfully made children of God. I ask that that reality would become so real tonight in our hearts as we leave. uh, That we meditate on it. That we'd really begin to internalize how deeply and fully we're loved. We thank you, Jesus, that you sent your son to die for us. We thank you for his resurrection and the conquering of death. We thank you for the victory that was won there. And you you offer this beautiful gift to us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We praise your name. And we want to become more like you and more in tune with your love every day. We praise you in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the City Grace Summer Breakout Sessions. Be sure to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit www.citygraceny.com for more information.